So I thought maybe we'd start with some theology. And because uh, I'm a heretic, you know, I don't know if you've heard or not. It's so great. I love uh, those, the people that won't read the shack and are mad about it, they're all my own people. <laughs> they are. Modern evangelical fundamentalists. That's what I grew up in. So they're my people, so be careful how you talk about them. And uh, the, uh, a lot of what's happening in the world um, and the move of the Spirit that's happening, that's rising up, is not only bringing to the forefront in the conversation the person of Jesus, but it's also the, the conversation about the centrality of relationship that originates in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And United Methodist Church has got a history about the Trinity that I think is part of the reason why you folks have been so supportive of what I've done. Now, I didn't set out to write a book that, that was defining the Trinity or anything like that. I, I was trying to write a book for Christmas for my kids. And... Uh, made the 15 copies at Office Depot that did everything I wanted it to do. So I have no clue what I'm doing, just so you know. And, and I love this. I love being the child inside an adventure that I don't even begin to comprehend. Um, I did spend some serious time working on theology. I went to Bible school and, and a good chunk of seminary before I ran out of money. And then had to learn, unlearn a lot of it, but that's all right. And, uh, um, but I've always had a pursuit of good questions. Uh, in Eve, there's a line in the first chapter, choose your question well because one good question is worth a thousand answers. And we grew up where there was only one answer to every question. So you, know, you weren't even allowed to ask the questions. And... Um, but I, uh, questions have been my friends and my companions my whole life. Good, a good question will open up and break down the boxes that surround us. And um, so I'm, I'm real, I really love a good question. And there's a lot of good ones um, that open up conversation. When, when John wrote the gospel, tradition says, and it's pretty, pretty agreed to, that the gospel of John was the last Thing written that is included in the canon of the New Testament. That uh, John was an old man, he's looking and surveying the landscape of what's happened to the faith, and, um, and the elders are coming to him and saying, would you please write a gospel? And he says, well, we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they said, well, we think that you have something to say from this vantage point that, uh, that would be really helpful. So, Everybody prayed and fasted for three days, and, and out of those three days, he sat down and wrote the prologue, John 1, 1 through 18. Um, that's what tradition says. And John doesn't begin with any place that the other gospel writers begin. They either begin with like Adam or Abraham or uh, John the Baptist, whatever. He, John goes all the way back to before creation. And that's where he starts. In fact, my personal opinion is that the Gospel of John is a commentary on Genesis. And that you can follow the themes that are included in Genesis through the Gospel of John. 
And he starts with the very same construction that exists in the Hebrew. In the beginning, God created, but in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, so, but, but, he does something a little bit different. He says, the word with, pros, it's in the Greek, doesn't mean with like uh, you got, you know, two chairs like this, so I'm with you. That's not what pros means. It actually means turn toward, turn toward. In the beginning was the word, Jesus, and Jesus is turned toward. And then you're going to be, he's going to introduce you to the Holy Spirit. So he establishes the centrality of the Trinity prior to creation. This is huge because our Western Christianity largely is not a belief in this relationship as, as where everything originates, emanates, exists. We, we kind of have a windshield washer wiper going on in our heads where we... We are attracted to the love and the relationship here, but we have been so indoctrinated by religion that we believe in that God. This God who is over here alone. In fact, our Latin word deus comes from, anybody know? Zeus, right? Zeus, who is the top of the food chain God who's, who's over here in isolation. Now, part of the problem, part of the problem is that that God's alone. And if God has ever been alone, that God does not by nature love. You follow? Love is not natural to that God because there has to be, there has to be something for that God to love. Frankly, this is why Islam does not refer to God being love. Merciful, yes, but not love. And rightly so, if God is a singularity who is alone then that God does not by nature love. In fact, if that God does love, it's because he needs something out here to love, which would be the creation, and that would be blasphemy because anything that God needs would be greater than God. You follow the logic? All right. So, but a lot of times we believe emotionally and in our experience about that God. That's, that's the God that we believe in. Um, so that's the God that's angry, that in and we have this sense that Jesus, yes, he's God. That's our affirmation, but he's not like the real God. He's like, there's a darkness behind Jesus. That, that that God, he's the one that Jesus came to save us from. That God requires perfection, is distance. That's the one that watches from a distance. So that God can't look on sin. Anybody ever heard that? Okay. Um, by the way, that is in the Bible. It's only half the verse. <laughs> it's in Habakkuk. And everybody quotes the first half. It says, in fact, Habakkuk even makes it uh, kind of worse, the first half. He's, he says, you are so, so beautiful, so grand, so fantastic, you can't look on sin. That's how he starts. You know what the second half says? So why do you? Does that not change the verse a little? You are so beautiful that you can't look on sin. So why do you? Right? Somehow we have this split between the Father and the Son. And who knows where the Holy Spirit is in my denomination. She just stopped doing stuff altogether. So, by the way, 
When I refer to the Holy Spirit as she, I'm doing what the Hebrews did, just so you know. When you're introduced to Ruach in verse 2 of Genesis, it's feminine. The verbs are feminine. And throughout Scripture, most of the nouns for God are masculine, but the verbs are almost all feminine. That should tell you something about the nature of God. That God is not bipolar or more masculine than feminine. In fact, the word mercy, we sing mercy. Every time you sing the word mercy, I want a new thought to come into your head. The word mercy comes from the same root as the word womb. Womb. So when you sing about the mercy of God, you're speaking of the womb love of God. And I don't know if you knew this, but God the Father has a womb. Did you know that? Yeah. He does. John 1, 8, John 1 I'll, I'll tell you, 18, I think. So here's what it says. But let me give you some little background. There's a Greek word that means womb. The Latin translation is uterus, utero. And, and in, when Luke talks about it, and he's talking about like, uh, uh, remember when uh, Jesus' mom uh, was in the womb of Mary, and Mary walks in, and John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb. The Greek word is kolpon. K-O-L-P-O-N, anglicized. So kolpon is womb, and Luke loves it because he's a doctor, so he uses womb a lot, right? John uses it. Remember in the conversation with, um, uh, in the middle of the night with Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus says, how can a man go back into his mother's kolpon, womb, right? And, and, and it becomes this conversation about if you had eyes to see, you would see that this is the reality of being born from above, right? From the womb, kolpon. In John 1, it says, no one has seen the Father except the only begotten who has been, who was hidden in the kolpon of the Father. The kolpon, Right? The father's womb. Now, it's men that translated it, so we ended up with bosom. <laughs> like, for real? You don't know the difference between a bosom and a womb? <laughs> but, you know, they were probably my people trying to translate the Bible. You couldn't even say the word breast without sinning. So, you know. <laughs> El Shaddai, which is the breasted one, ended up like Lord of Hosts or something. You know, it's just like... But the picture is that Jesus moves from the womb of the Father to the womb of Mary. Now, what, what's the difference here? Well, one of the differences here is that when this God creates, this God, like a soap bubble, blows creation out here somewhere. And then it gets separated. Right? That's our picture. So that what does he have to do? He has to send Jesus over to the soap bubble to build a bridge back. So Jesus shows up in our world and he says... All right, I died for you. All you have to do is like pray magic words or something, you know, which aren't in the Bible, but sounds really good. But see, this God is about appeasement and sacrifice and magic. And a lot of our Christianity is about appeasement, sacrifice, and magic. Because this God doesn't love by nature, so you somehow have to get his love wire tripped and then keep it tripped. And, and how do you get back into relationship with him? You've got to run into Jesus at some point, right? And then you've got to, what? Be smart enough to understand the theology of it, and, and something's got to happen in your heart. And then you pray the magic words, sinner's prayer, which are not in the Bible, but 
Sounds really good. So, but that's the concept. Every religion on the planet begins with separation. You are separated, including the Christian religion. There's a difference between Jesus and the Christian religion. Do you understand that? Okay. We have turned relationship with Jesus into conversion into a religion called Christianity. So everybody's trying to make everybody Christian. Jesus was never a Christian. That got me in trouble. I put it in the shack, you know, where, where Jesus says, I'm not trying to make people Christians. You know, I'm not one. That bothers people. And he's not. He, he didn't like after he ascended going like, oh, if I had just waited 50 years, I could have become a Christian, you know. <laughs> I wonder if I can ask me into my own heart. <laughs> right? He's a Jew. He's still a Jew. And... And the beautiful thing is that it's not an invitation into a religion. This is, the, this is the unveiling of a relationship. So instead of in this model of the distant God who is unreachable, unknowable, impassable, unemotional, watching from the infinite distance of a disapproving heart, John blows it up in verse 1 by saying, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was face to face. Relationship from the beginning. In fact, this God has never been alone. This God has never, God has never done anything alone. If you want to understand why we have a drive to community and why we have a drive to relationship, it's centered here. And where is creation created? This, I'm not telling you anything new. This is the early church. This is Irenaeus, Athanasius. These are the desert mothers and fathers who are talking to us about the centrality of this. If they'd have written a systematic theology, they would have started with the Trinity and ended with the Trinity. You know, over here, the Trinity ends up on subparagraph 3047 on page 490, like a little paragraph. But here, everything is centered inside this relationship. Where is creation created here? Right here, and not only right here, in Christ. Not separated, blown out there, but here. You're created in Christ. Every person that was killing Jesus on the cross was breathing Christological air. Because there is nothing outside of God. God didn't invent a space to put creation. Creation is created in Him. John 1, 3. Not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from Him. The Word. Is this making sense to you? How do you separate yourself from the love of God? You can't. You may think you can. You're just not that powerful. And guess what? If you were able to, guess what? You would lapse into non-being. Because everything is by, for, through, and in Him. And Romans says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And it has a list of things that can't, and it includes anything present, anything future. Not life, not death. Death can't separate you from the love of God. Last two verses of Romans 8. Nor any created thing. Are you a created thing? Yup. Guess what? You're just not powerful enough to separate you from the love of God. So why do we feel this separation? 
You know what the first not good was in Scripture? Aloneness. Aloneness. Well, we think it's like, oh, he didn't, he was by himself, didn't have a wife, you know? Like, it's not good that the man be alone. That is not what the Hebrew says. It is not good that the man be in a separation. This is before she is brought out from within him. So somehow created in this, the mystery of iniquity is that Adam turns away from face-to-face-to-face relationship and, he, and he, he now turns from light and it casts a shadow and that shadow now becomes reality to him and he defines everything that is good and evil inside his own shadow. Because there is no shadow of turning with thee. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So whenever you're dealing with that kind of darkness, guess who brought it to the table? We did. We begin to understand that holiness defined over here is absolutely different than holiness defined inside this relationship. Because that holiness is some kind of antiseptic purity, and you're kind of out here feeling like a piece of crap, which is what this teaches you, you know. And, and somehow, you're scared of God's holiness. Why? It's, it's some kind of perfect requirement of perfect behavior, and every point that you fail does what? Introduces new depths of shame. And guess what? Shame doesn't exist in this circle. There was never any shame in, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's relationship. Ever. Guilt is I've done something wrong. That's transgress. Shame is I am something wrong. And that is not part of God's creation. It is part of our shadow that we have cast when we've turned our face away. And so Adam, it says it's not good that he be in a separation. You do understand that anything that is not good does not originate in God. Because God is good. And only good. God doesn't, doesn't become something that is not good. And he becomes fully human. What is God's view of who you are as a human being? Let me tell you, I promise this is true. It is way higher than your view of yourself as a human being. And we've created something that this God doesn't want anything to do with this. So what does he do? He sends Jesus over there, who somehow is God, and can not only look on sin, but become flesh. And not only that, according to Paul, he can become sin for us. And we end up with an atonement where, where God the Father pours out his wrath on his Son in order to open up the possibility that you can save yourself. By doing the magic. Do you understand how difficult this is? What if we define holiness inside here? Question. Good question. Was God holy before there was any sin? Yes. So fundamentally, holiness has got nothing to do with sin at all. The word means otherness, uniqueness. Guess what's other and unique? It is the love that the Father loves the Son. Son loves the Spirit. We had the verses from John 14 up here, which is all about this, right? 
But we've turned our face away. So Jesus climbs into our world. Theology, early church, basic stuff. But we are so lost in this imagination of God that that's where religion grows up because it's all about separation. This is all about union. You know you're created in the image and likeness of God, but you know that image is not, you cannot even begin to understand it unless you, unless you understand that Jesus is in union with you. That's what makes the image of God. And likeness, if you want to know who you are and who you are like, it's God. It's Jesus. And so when we come up with these sense of separation, all of our theories about judgment and everything else are punitive and retributive. They require perfectionist performance, behavioral change, all of this. This is completely different than that. This is an imagination, uh, in a real sense, of the character and nature of God that is revealed in Jesus. If you want to know who you are, you look at Jesus. Because you're made in the image and likeness of God. You were a good creation before anything was broken or covered up or hidden. That is the truth of your being. And until you know the truth of your being, you will function according to what you believe. You're separated from God. You're full of shame. You should be ashamed. Right? You're not good. Add any of the I am nots. I am not what? Fill in the blank for yourself. I'm not, I'm not mature enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not a boy. I'm not, I'm not good. I'm not kind. I'm not patient. I'm, you start adding up all the I am nots. Remember this. No I am not can exist without first there being an I am. And the I am is the truth about you. Wholeness, another word for holiness, but wholeness in a healing sort of sense, wholeness is when the way of your being, how you live, matches the truth of your being. But if you believe the truth of your being is that you're a piece of crap, good luck trying to use self-discipline to cover up that because that's what religion requires of you. But when you find out that the truth of your being is that you are patient, you are kind, you are good, you are pure of heart, that that's the truth of your being, then the way of your being can begin to match it. And it'll match it naturally. I have to learn to disagree with the lies and begin to agree with the truth as revealed in Jesus. Jesus comes not to start a new religion. So that, like, oh, we now have a religion that can compete with the other ones. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus is not the founder of Christianity. Jesus came to reveal the nature of the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit and to show us what it's like to be fully human and fully alive. And that continues to be the work of the Holy Spirit, to unearth you from all the lies so that you can be free and live life abundantly inside a world that's broken. And this world is broken. We broke it. We did it. God is a God who submits by nature. Why? Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been submitting one to another. Submitting one to another is relationship. 
And so when God says, submit one to another, he's not saying, some of you take charge and tell the other ones what to do. The early church, had they took them like 400 years to come up with a word that tried to describe the love relationship that exists here. And the word that they came up with is perichoresis. Per, perichoresis, which one of the ways to translate it is the mutual interpenetration of one with the other without the loss of personhood. The Father never becomes the Spirit. The Spirit never becomes the Son. And yet, their relationship is so mutual. These three persons, that the only way that you can talk about them is in terms of oneness. They are one. We don't believe in three gods. This believes in three gods. At least two, if they allow the Holy Spirit to be one. But, but they believe in three gods because they have... Jesus separated from the Father on the cross. They have Jesus who can become sin, but the Father can't look on sin. Do you understand? They are two different gods. We don't believe in two different gods or three different gods. And in this model, who knows where the Holy Spirit was? Like, is the Holy Spirit trying to... Nobody writes about that part of this model, but is the Holy Spirit trying to protect and enable the Father's abuse against the Son, or is the Holy Spirit trying to protect the Son from the abuse of Father? Don't know. So, usually as the atonement is about that, separation. But religion is about separation. So how'd this work out in my life? I grew up inside this, but I saw flashes of this, and, I, and it showed up. It, it showed up in hymns, or in songs, or in Communion, or, or there were just times I got caught sideways by this, and then I was driven back to this because I was so ashamed of who I was. I started with the assumption that the truth of my being was worthless piece of crap. And that's what I believed. Why? Well, I had a dad who beat the crap out of me, Right? He didn't know how to be a father. His father had broken him before I showed up, and his father before him. He didn't know. He did not have the chip for being a dad. And he didn't know what to do with his anger. He didn't know what to do with the fact that when he was 12 years old, he was an orphan. He didn't know what to do with the fact that he lived in a world where his father had run away from his first wife and not divorced her, but, but but took along a 13-year-old girl and ran away with her and faked a marriage. And when she had her first live birth, she was 15 and he was 47. That's my grandmother, that little girl. We have our genetic histories. We have our family histories. And they all weave together. When, and, and this God who submits by nature climbs into the choices you make and starts to breathe life to it. Look at any baby. That baby exists because two people, for whatever motives, have come together and God has submitted to that choice and given life to that child. God submits by nature. And this is a God who climbs into our darkness by choice in order to begin to build something living in it. So part of my darkness and shame, I had a dad. I always believed I was not enough for him. In fact, when he would come with his brutal discipline, 
my only defense against him were the three words, I'll be good. And I would yell it over and over. I'll be good. Just give me another chance. That's my whole relationship with God over here. I'm sorry. I screwed up. You know? I need to recommit myself back. I need to, right? I'll be good. I'll be good. I'll be good. And every time I yelled that at my dad, I was saying to him, I'm not good. It reinforced the lie. Sexual abuse started before I was five years old in the tribal culture, and there was a lot. By six, I'm already twisted enough to be looking for sexual situations. A highly sexualized child. But at six, I'm also sent away to boarding school. And now, I don't know anybody. And I'm at boarding school, and the, and the first nights, the big boys came and molested the little boys. Nothing like sexual abuse that tears the soul of a human being apart and implants something at the core of their being that says, you know what you are? Piece of shit. That's the truth of your being. And shame becomes the way you live. My life was learning how to be a perfectionist performer covering up an ocean of shame. That's the shack. That's the house on the inside that people helped me build. And then I turned around and destroyed things too. Because hurt people hurt people. But I'm a good performer. So I'm constantly covering up, constantly trying to hide. It was helpful that I could move and leave. I learned by going to 13 schools before I graduated high school. Of course, I'm religious, so I didn't just run away from relationships. I just heard God call me somewhere else. <laughs> Religion is really helpful when you're trying to justify yourself. And I entered into a relationship with Kim. We got married, and Kim saved my life because she is a force. She is the fiery fury of God. See, in this picture... The fiery punishment of God is to punish you and set the scales right. In this picture, the fiery presence of God is to free you from anything that is hurting you. Anything that is broken. I have a daughter who's been fighting a brain tumor for 10 years. We have a daughter. And she, that little brain tumor, that thing, the pituitary adenoma that's on the back of her pituitary gland began to whisper to my daughter that she was damaged goods because her systems were out of whack and she had to take oral chemo, which she still does, and she's to try to shrink this thing. And, and when she began to believe the whisper that you're damaged goods, it opened her up to some really difficult relational situations that hurt her deeply. And she's on the other side of that, but... I'm her father. You give me the opportunity to be a flaming fire. And I would climb inside that little piece of tissue that doesn't know where it belongs. And I would destroy it. But even more, I would destroy every vestige of that lie that hurts my daughter. And it's not because she didn't live up to my expectations. It is because I love her. 
and I'm opposed to anything that is not of love's kind. That is the love of God. This is a God that will not stand idly by while anything that is existing in you that is not of love's kind. This is not a mamby-pamby kind of God that is just going to go, well, I guess it's case sera, sera. No, this God is opposed to anything that harms you, including the lies that you believe. But this God is so respectful of you as a human being that he won't just rip those lies out of your life. There were things that I developed as survival skills because of the sexual abuse stuff, hypervigilance, the ability to turn a conversation back on someone. I'll tell you one of the most profound things about shame. Shame will destroy your ability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation. When I was first married to Kim, she would say these terrible things to me. Like, don't mix the colors with the whites. <laughs> I know, can you believe that? Because I had this perfectionist performance covering up an ocean of shame. And when she said, don't, you're making a mistake, she pushed right down through that thin layer and up came fight or flight. And because of my history, I just disappeared inside, if nowhere else. What did I hear her say? She's making an observation. She's trying to help me. Don't, don't mix the colors with the whites. I heard her say, I don't know why I married such a loser of a human being as you. Shame had destroyed my ability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation. I had all these survival skills. You know what? God never yanked them out of my life. Some of those things kept me alive as a child. That's where they came from. When you have to deal with abuse of one sort or another, you, you find a way to survive. And I think God has placed this unbelievable capacity within human beings to find a way to survive. And you can put 10 children in front of the same abuse and you'll have 10 lives go 10 totally different directions because of the uniqueness of the human being. You are a masterpiece, whether you know it or not, or believe it or not. You are so intricately made and wound that only the God who knows you knows how to unwind you without hurting you more. And I've never had the experience, as much as I want God to yank these survival mechanisms and these lies out of my life, God has never done that. God has climbed into my world and loved me to the place where I can finally take the risk of letting those skills go. Even though for years those skills inhibited my ability to have honest face-to-face -face relationship. It took years to work these things out. This, how many of us would like extreme soul makeover, right? <laughs> Send me to Disney World and fix me by the time I get back, you know? Or give me a red or blue pill or something. But we're too, we are too incredibly crafted for quick fixes. And the work of God in you is not for you to become something that you weren't before, but to uncover the truth of who you've been the entire time. Anything that is not true takes away from something that is true. Light has speed. Light has particle and wave. Darkness has nothing. It is simply the absence of light. You can have light without darkness, but you can't have darkness without light. You can have freedom without bondage, but you can't have bondage without freedom. 
Everything that is true and right and beautiful has existence within itself because it's in Jesus. I made a mistake in the shack. It's not a huge, well, for me it's a huge one. Most people wouldn't even notice. And, you know, I didn't write the book by myself. That's kind of obvious. But God didn't write it by himself either. This is, the, this is the beauty of a God who loves participation. Side note, can I take something out of your vocabulary? I'm, words mean a lot to me. And, and a lot of times we communicate things that we don't actually believe in the deepest parts of our hearts, but we're so disassociated because of religion, we don't understand what we're saying. How many of you, and I bet you zero, but how many of you would say to your grandchild or your child, say to your grandchild, because sometimes we're still disassociated when it comes to our own kids. It's our grandkids that we have a real problem with. Like, we love them too much, right? Who would ever say to their child, um, Ivy, it's one of my grandbabies, Ivy, I can't wait for you to grow up so that you can be a tool that I can use. Yeah? If you can't put language for your affection and love for your grandchild, if you can, if, if you can put, use utilitarian tool language in your relationship with your grandchild, then maybe you can put it in the mouth of God. But if you can't, don't put it in the mouth of God. God never uses anybody. You are not a tool. You don't have a relationship with tools. God doesn't heal you because he wants to use you. He heals you because he loves you. And the invitation is then to participate and play. You're a child. This, is, this God uses everything. Right? Has a perfect will you've got to try to figure out. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff, baggage that goes with this God. This God is about face-to-face -face relationship. And that love is so relentless, you're not powerful enough to change it. You can turn your face away from it potentially forever. I get accused of being a universalist all the time. It's great. We all died in Jesus. We all rose in Jesus. Corinthians. No question. This is a statement that is truly, true and worthy of full acceptance. This is Paul writing to Timothy, one of my favorite verses, because Paul's got this tongue-in-cheek thing going. And he says, this is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, especially believers. Because Timothy's got a church. So he's wondering, like, are these people even saved? And Paul's saying, yeah, even believers are saved. <laughs> right? It's great. So the mistake. And this is where we'll, we'll land for our time. Does, is this helpful to you? Okay, 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 okay. Sometimes when you see something, lights start to come on, right? Because this is everything. Everything is here. Whatever you think hell is, it's got to be also in this circle. And if there are parts of it that don't make any sense, I bet you it's coming from over there. This isn't even real, but it's real to us. We created this out of our darkness. All Do you know... God has never been a religious being, ever. There was no time where it's like, so, who's in charge of the service this week, you know? Like, 
do we have to wait till I come to do communion or what? You know, it's, it doesn't exist there. This is about freedom and, and life and relationship. Everything that is about religion, we brought to the table. And some of it is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Sacred space, art. I mean, there are some things that are beautiful, but there's a lot of devastation that we brought. So what does God do? Because he's a God who submits by nature. He climbs into our religions and begins to destroy them through love from the inside out. So when you feel this conflict between institutional Christianity and your own work that the Holy Spirit is doing, guess what? That's sponsored by the Holy Spirit. That conflict does not originate with you. Because God is opposed to anything that is not of love's kind. And there is a lot of religious baggage that he is opposed to. And some of it is in you. And you're going to feel conflict. And the thing is, how do we grow without hurting people more? Our freedom is, is never a justification for now becoming something that is not the truth of our being. Or something that is non-love. So if your freedom in your relationship with God enables you to be meaner... That, that is not originating in truth. The steps we take, we have to include where we've come from because it's part of our song. There are, that's why I say they're my people. They're my people. And yeah, they're lost inside their stuff. But I'm still lost inside some of my stuff. So the mistake. I'm, I'm getting there. Mackenzie goes back to the shack and has been transformed. This is after he's been there and he's just, he has just lost, lost it, right? And he, and he yells with all the fury. A real lament of brokenness that we don't know how to do very well. This room is full of brokenness. There's a, probably nobody in this room that cancer hasn't touched, right? From somebody in our family or our friendships. Right? There are people here whose children have taken their lives. There are people here who have lost children in miscarriage. Right? We're broken. It's a broken world. And, and Mackenzie yells his first really honest prayer. I hate you and I'm done. It's a real lament. You can read them just like that in the Psalms. In that scene where he's, he's like raised his fist to God and says, I'm done, and he walks away, and suddenly the transformation around him, and the same shack that he just walked out of is transformed now into some place he doesn't even recognize. And he walks back up, and he's about to knock on the door, and out from inside, out from inside the shack comes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's Calvin and Luther. Forgiveness precedes confession and repentance. That's Calvin and Luther. Right? Because he hasn't confessed or repented. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are inside his world. That's John 14, 20. I'm in the Father. You're in me. I'm in you. And you're about to run and scatter for the hills. Listen to this verse in the same passage. And you're going to think that I am alone but I am not alone because the Father is with me. There is your commentary on Genesis. All the way through John, this attack against aloneness. You're not alone. And for you to think that you're alone in the, in the journey that you're on is a lie. 
So he goes into the shack and he looks over to where Missy's blood stain should be and it's gone. Mistake. It should still be there. Just because you work through your stuff doesn't mean that the evidence of it disappears. The redeeming genius of God is to climb into our darkness and to redeem everything so that the losses that we've experienced get woven into something that becomes an icon and a monument of grace. Here's a good question. Who originated the cross? Not God, because God doesn't make torture devices. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, and you cannot understand the cross in any other wor words than a machine of darkness. God does not make crosses. But God knows if he creates this high order of being, they are going to say no. And the iconic statement of the fist in the face of God is going to be the cross, where they will take human beings, try to keep them alive as long as possible and as much pain as possible as a statement against the imago Dei and the likeness that every human being bears. God didn't create the cross, but submitted to it in order to go down to the deepest place of our darkness and use the choice we make to kill life himself as the basis for our adoption. He doesn't come for the Sunday parts of us. He comes for all of us. All the parts, all the broken bits and pieces. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is my cry. That is the cry of aloneness. And he has to go into my aloneness in order to redeem and find me. And he does. And not just me, but all of us. And he uses our spitting in his face, our abandonment of him, our despising him as the basis to plant and pitch a forever tent of adoption. You're mine, all of you. All the bits and broken parts are mine. Why does he yell that? You know, it's, it's the first line of a hit song, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who'd start a hit song that way? David did. Psalm 22. You know how Psalm 22 ends? He finished it. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 22 is called the Psalm of the Cross. You know what it says halfway through the psalm? You don't despise the affliction of the afflicted, nor will you turn your face from him. And when he cries, you'll hear. See, Jesus knows the whole psalm. He enters into our darkness, and he feels for the first time in his existence our darkness and the sense of separation. But if Jesus had actually believed that it was true, he would have never said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who had he been talking to? And Paul says, you want to know where God the Father was when Jesus is dying on the cross? For God the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And the gospel says, guess what? We start from an entirely different place than religion. Religion starts with you're separated. The gospel starts with you're included in Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. 
Start to agree with Jesus about the truth of your being, and the way of your being will match it. And you know what that scene tells me? There is no darkness that I can bring to the table, no betrayal that I've perpetrated, no damage that I've done, which none of it is justified in that sense. Nothing justifies the cross, not even the entire, you know, salvation of the entire cosmos would justify a cross. The ends don't justify the means, but God redeems them. There is nothing I can bring to the table that is so dark that God won't climb in the middle of it and begin to transform it into an icon and a monument of grace that, is, that becomes so precious to us that we'll take a torture device and we'll wear it on our rings and around our necks because it is the symbol that nothing can prevent Jesus from redeeming darkness. This is the beauty of a God whose affection is relentless, who loves you to the core of your being and knows everything there is to know and will not separate himself from you. You're just not that powerful. You can turn away. You can say, I don't want the relationship, potentially forever, but that love will always pursue you and you will live and move and have your being inside of it. And for those who want to hold on to their darkness forever, there's a word for that tension between being surrounded by love and holding on to hate and holding on to bitterness and holding on to unforgiveness. You know what that word is? Hell. Hell. But that love will constantly pursue you. This is a God who is good all the time whose love is relentless, who knows you and you matter. Amen.